0: Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. On this episode, Bishop talks about the recent announcement from Indiana bishops that the dispensation from Mass will continue until November 1st. Then it's on to a saint whose feast day we recently celebrated. Hear why Bishop calls St. John Vianney the ideal parish priest. The show wraps up with Bishop talking about the vandalism happening in Catholic churches in the United States focusing especially on misconceptions surrounding St. Junipero, Sarah. If you have a question for Bishop to answer, submit it at RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop.
1: Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our Bishop. Thank you again for joining us. You're welcome, Kyle. Good to see you. With uh, back to school stuff going on, do you remember your first day of school or uh, maybe first day of
2: seminary or any of those well first day of school i only remember because there was a photo in our local paper of me as a first grader there was no kindergarten <laughs> okay with an eighth grade girl so uh-huh. it's kind of neat in front of the school so that's kind of like i've always had that photo of
1: all the students they picked the yeah, two of you know know to, how, to highlight
2: why. yeah i guess they wanted a first grade boy and an eighth grade girl so uh-huh. you have to show it to you sometime yeah i haven't changed no. <laughs> haven't changed a bit. Yeah. Were you nervous? Do you remember anything, oh, about, it? Remember anything okay. about it? I don't remember anything about it. I don't. I, uh, <laughs> yeah. But it was Catholic school that had over a thousand kids. And I think there were like maybe 60 kids in my class, in just in one classroom. Uh-huh. I mean, unbelievable <laughs> back then. Yeah. Yeah. They could never do that today. What about first day in, in Rome in school?
1: Was yeah, I mean, I did kind
2: of, I mean, I remember my arrival in Rome, but as far as the first day, and of course, sitting there and everything's in Italian, it was kind of <laughs> overwhelming. Yeah. Like yeah. saying, okay, how much do I understand that the professors are saying? Right. I was taking notes and catching words here and there. So, you know, because <laughs> I only had one month of Italian. I can't so imagine imagine that. sitting in classes after just studying it for a month. Uh, it was <laughs> a big learning curve. That's crazy. Yeah. All right, well, do you have a, an opening prayer for us today? Yeah, you know, I thought I'd use a uh, actually a spiritual meditation that Archbishop Gomez wrote using the writings of St. Junipero Serra. You know, they've been tearing down some of his statues. I want to talk about that sure. today a little bit. But Archbishop Gomez, who's also the president of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, did a beautiful letter to the faithful for his feast day this year, which is on July 1st. But anyhow, these tearing down of the statues of this great you know, saint, the, call him the Apostle to Calif- of California, is very sad. But I, I really like this meditation because the Archbishop uses the writings of St. Junipero. It's a little lengthy, but I thought it would be a good way to begin today's program. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. O Lord... You are complete mercy, complete love, and complete tenderness toward all men and women, even toward the most ungrateful sinners. You wish all people to attain the ends for which you compassionately created us. You yearn that we might believe that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and advance toward the salvation you will for us. You are sweet and gentle and you call us in the gentleness of your divine voice in the sweet and gentle tones of a father addressing his favorite child. You extend the golden bonds of your goodwill and love. You pardon us in your mercy. Father of all mercy and consolation, pour forth the abundance of your love with mercy. By your mercy, conquer every type of malice help us to leave not only our faults but the bad habits and situations in our lives which lead to these faults that we might love you alone speak lord for your servant is listening with a contrite heart help us to begin right now to realize the truth to be entirely animated by love of you Help us begin to live a holy life with a burning love and zeal for the salvation of our neighbors. Make us more gentle, more calm, more nurturing, and strong. Remind us of your gentle goodwill, O Lord. May we never be severe or harsh. May we see in everyone a child whom you have created and redeemed with the most precious blood of your Son teach us to know that you value kindness, that love is the best way to attract people to you. May we always help others to taste and see the sweetness and gentleness of your love. Let us bear every hardship for the love of you and the salvation of souls. In our trials, may we know that we are loved as your own children. To a willing heart all is sweet, so grant us love and patience, and conform us always to your will, O God. We entrust ourselves to the ever-immaculate Queen Mary, and say with the angel, Hail Mary. St. Junipero, Sarah, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Wow, that's good. It's a beautiful, yeah. beautiful thing, and it's it's... Archbishop Gomez, you know, used the writings of St. Junipero to uh, compose that. And uh, I think today we need this prayer because of, you know, so many people angry and harsh words all over the place and, and all the malice that we see. So, I think it's a beautiful prayer. Yeah.
1: What was the name of that prayer, if people want to look it up and read through it again?
2: Archbishop Jose Gomez titled it, On the Mercy of God. Okay. And it can be found on the website of the Archdiocese of of Los Angeles. And it's it's at the end of uh, the Archbishop's letter to the faithful for the memorial of St. Junipero Serra. All right. And I think it was posted on June 29th, just a couple days before the feast day of St. Junipero.
1: Good. All right, well, like you said, we can talk a little bit later about things that are going on with statues being torn down and a lot of turmoil going on in the world right now. I'd be curious to hear your reflections on some of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, One thing though, maybe before we get into too much, yesterday I saw there was a a statement from the Indiana Conference of Catholic Bishops about extending the dispensation for Mass. Originally scheduled to, to go to August 15th, now it's extended to November 1st. Can you explain a little bit about what a dispensation is uh, for people that we're, we don't use that word a whole lot these days. Right. Um, what is a dispensation and why is that going to be going until November 1st?
2: Well, there's a law of the church that we must attend Mass on Holy Days and Sundays, Sundays mm-hmm. and Holy Days of obligation. And it's important that we obey that law. But when you look at church laws, the bishops have the authority regarding certain laws to dispense from their observance which means you don't have to observe the law, Mm -hmm. usually for a period of time. There might be, for example, a special situation where a bishop might dispense from the law of fasting or abstinence, you know, on Ash Wednesday or Good Friday or a Friday of Lent. But you have to have a just cause. Mm -hmm. You you know, a bishop shouldn't just relax these laws or Mm -hmm. dispense from their observance unless there's a good reason. So in this case... It's the pandemic. Um, I'm glad a lot of people are attending Mass, you know, that's, and those who are able, and I I, I hope that they do attend Mm -hmm. Mass. But to make it obligatory for everyone at this time, we Indiana bishops, like bishops around the country, felt it it was better to continue the dispensation until November 1st, especially because we've had an uptick Mm -hmm. in uh, a rise in, in cases of, of the uh, COVID-19 virus in the state of Indiana so that we wouldn't trouble people's conscience. If, you know, let's say you have someone who's healthy, but let's say lives in a home with someone that are taking care of Mm -hmm. vulnerable uh, elderly, you know, parents or something. Mm -hmm. And, they really feel that they can't, they, that they shouldn't go to mass because in case they caught the virus they would, you know, uh, it'd be a contagious towards their parents. So we don't want to make it obligatory. I hope a lot of people still go to mass because we have the masks, we have the social distancing. Mm-hmm. However, there are people I think who have a just reason that they, they don't feel that they can go. Uh, obviously, the elderly would be one category of people. Mm-hmm. So so we extended the dispensation till November 1st unless things change. I mean, we could change it if if things got dramatically better before then, sure. but we don't even know. Right. You know, after November 1st, how, you know, by November 1st, how how is it going to be? Yeah. So, what yeah. effect do you think this is
1: having, I guess both on our parishes and on individuals that are are not going to mass because, you know, they're worried about the pandemic. Do you think this is having uh, an impact on people's faith as well as maybe parishes, the uh, budgets, and, and just the,
2: I guess, the community of the parish? Yeah, I think so. I, think, um, I do know some people who are going to Mass on a weekday when there's a lot fewer people and mm-hmm. less risk, so that they are then receiving the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. So, I think that's an option for some people because... They feel that it's safer, sure, because there's fewer people. But I think it is really sad if, if people are going without the Eucharist. And I think of some elderly people. I'm glad that, that the priests and, and deacons are, and extraordinary ministers are bringing the Holy Communion to those who are homebound. Mm-hmm. Um, but doing the necessary precautions. Sometimes they'll meet out on the front porch or whatever. So it's outside and they keep a distance and wear a mask and, and give Holy communion. And I know people too, who are still watching live stream masses or watch mass on, you know, EWTN or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's been a decline in, in collections. Obviously the financial implications of this are significant. A lot of people though are being generous by using online giving, Mm -hmm. if, uh, or they're sending their envelopes in the mail. Sure. Um, I think some some parishes, from what I've seen, are doing better than others yeah. financially. So I, I would encourage people to remember that you know this is important, especially worry about our parishes with schools mm-hmm. because of the the budgets in those parishes. So it is a challenging time. It's not just for our diocese. I mean, yeah. it's across the country, and we're all doing our best. And yeah. All right.
1: Well, another thing, I don't know if you have any thoughts on the recent passing of Regis Philbin.
2: I hear he's going to be buried at Notre Dame. He already was. Oh, okay. He already was. Yeah, he was a graduate of Notre Dame back in 1953. He he was a really strong supporter. He would talk about his alma mater often on TV. And, you know, for decades, a Catholic talk show host and game show host – so he had this career in television, you know, who wants to be a millionaire and live with, what was it called? Live with Regis and Kathy and then Kelly, I think. Uh-huh. Right. Um, he attributed, you know, the good of that that happened in his life to his Catholic education. You mm-hmm. know, 16 years in Catholic schooling. So, so he was a big supporter of Catholic schools and his uh, high school in New York and, of course, Notre Dame. He was... You know, proud alumnus of Notre Dame, he gave a a, a couple million dollar gift to Notre Dame for a, a theater studio theater on campus. Hmm. It's in the Performing Arts Building, and it's a uh, it's called the Regis Philbin Studio Theater, and it's a home for lab and performance art productions in Notre Dame's Department of Film, Television, and Theater. It's just a hundred seat facility, but. That was a major gift. And then he also was a good supporter of the Center for the Homeless in South Bend, oh, even though he didn't live in South Bend. So may he rest in peace. He was, from what, everything I know about him, it sounds like he was a, a very good man. I looked up a little bit. I guess his
1: full name is Regis Francis Xavier Philbin. Oh, so Francis okay. Xavier, good, yeah. good Catholic middle name there. Yeah, and uh, apparently he holds the Guinness World Record for the most hours on U.S. television. Is that right? I was kind of shocked by that's that's amazing. Yeah. All right. Well, also yesterday was the feast of Saint John Vianney, who's the patron of parish priests. I don't know if you have any thoughts or reflections on his life and and what uh, maybe a good intercessory
2: for our parish priests that we should. Ask for his prayers for them. Yeah, he's a great example for, for priests. Um, you know, we call him the cure of ours because he was the um, the little French town of ours. He was the priest cure. In French, it means uh, it means like um, it's like the word for taking care, pastoral care. That's what they call a priest. Oh, okay. Like even in English, we would refer to priests associate pastors as curates. I don't know if you ever heard that, but okay. curate it all comes from the same Latin root. But anyhow, John Mary Vianney, he was born pretty poor family, he a peasant family, and had very little education. I don't know that he had any until he was, you know, like 17 years old, because he would help in the fields hmm. and help tending the flocks and things like that. But but he knew his prayers by heart. His mother was very devout. So so he was um, had a desire to become a priest but it was very difficult for him to achieve it because of his lack of education and he really struggled in the seminary i think he failed latin and, uh-huh. and so there was a big ordeal but but the seminary formators the superiors saw how his goodness and saw even as a, a young man, that this guy was very spiritual. He was a holy young man. So so I think they, they helped him through, mm-hmm. and he finally got ordained a priest at the age of 29. So therefore, like seminarians who struggle, they'll often, with their studies, they'll often ask for <laughs> John Vianney's intercession. Sure. But he was sent to this little town called Ars in southern France, and it was a town where you know, very few practice the faith. It was, um, you know, one of those, very, it was kind of like missionary territory. Hmm. So he basically spent his whole priestly life there and turned it around. I mean, through the years, because of his holy example, his preaching, etc., people returned to the church and came from all over. He had great love and devotion for the Holy Eucharist. That was the center of his life, his adoration in front of the Blessed Sacrament. But I think probably what he's known for the most, really the fundamental characteristic of his extraordinary priesthood is, is as a confessor. Mm-hmm. He would spend a large part of the day or most of the day in the confessional. Yeah. And he led people to repentance it's said that he could read people's hearts, could read their consciences. That's a little scary. Yeah. <laughs> um, a little intimidating. A little intimidating. But he was a tireless confessor. And, and he was always very humble. He, and he, he just was the ideal parish priest. He led so many people to God and um, had also a beautiful devotion to the Blessed Mother. So he has a lot of traits that make him a good model for parish priests. Mm-hmm. And um, both St. John Paul II, and especially Pope Benedict XVI held him up and wrote about him as a model. Like when we had the year for priests uh, right. under Pope De- he wrote a whole letter about John Vianney. Mm-hmm. He especially shows the importance of prayer in the life of a priest and the importance of, of being a minister of God's reconciliation and peace in the sacrament of penance. Mm -hmm. So it was great yesterday to celebrate his feast day, and I had mass the day before August 3rd with our seminarians and instituted seven of them into the ministry of Lecter and Uh one into the ministry of Acolytes. So seminarians are at Lake Wawasee this week. Every year they spend a week at at Knoll Hall and Lake Wawasee, so it was great to be with them. I would have liked to have been with them on uh, the feast of Saint John Vianney, yeah, but I have a confirmation that evening, so okay. I, I had it the night before, yeah. With him considered,
1: I think in one of the descriptions it said he was considered slow yeah. in his studies, and they were kind of wondering if he could be a priest. How important is the intellectual abilities and intellectual studies of the priest versus, I guess, maybe the more pastoral uh, or have you, the compassionate, the, the prayerful, you know, the, the things that
2: maybe wouldn't show up on a test. Yeah, I mean, they're all important. I mean, that's why we have the four dimensions of priestly formation, human, intellectual, spiritual, and pastoral. Mm-hmm. And you really need all four. You know, for as far as the intellectual, which is what John Vianney struggled with, it wasn't that he wasn't intelligent. It was that he didn't have the proper education to prepare him before he went to the seminary. Mm-hmm. So it's not like he didn't have the ability. It's just that he was a late starter because his family was so poor, he right. didn't have schooling. But in a man being approved for ordination, he has to have what you, we call in Latin the scientia debita, which means like do knowledge, sufficient knowledge, Okay, in order to preach and teach uh-huh. the faith. So yeah, they they have to be able to to know the faith, to be able to teach it accurately, sure. you know, and and to preach. So if a man doesn't have that ability, he he won't be ordained. We would say he he might have a vocation, some kind of religious vocation, but but not the priesthood because the ministry of the word and the teaching aspect is fundamental. I mean, the priests need to be able to teach the faith correctly. Mm-hmm. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about consecrated life and. It was really a good um to to recognize that that vocation in the church. And this past Sunday, I had the joy of of celebrating mass with the final profession of two sisters of St. Francis. It, in Mishawaka, they made their final vows, you know, which happens after eight years of formation. So their perpetual profession of vows. And then I was uh, wanted to talk about another religious congregation here in our diocese that, really has a very beautiful heritage and you may know of them we they're commonly called the victory knoll sisters mm-hmm. their official name is our lady of victory missionary sisters it's really quite a, a blessing and you know their their mother house is in huntington there's a been a, always a very close bond between these sisters and uh, the diocese because the fifth bishop of fort wayne Archbishop John Knoll mm-hmm. was a big promoter and, and very good friend and benefactor of the sisters. As a matter of fact, Archbishop Knoll is buried in the cemetery at Victory Knoll oh. in, in Huntington. He's, huh. uh, so I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the Victory Knoll sisters. The founder was a priest in Chicago by the name of Father John Siegstein. He had visited the Southwest of the United States when he was a young priest. This is back in the early 1900s. And he saw that there was, uh, there was a lot of poverty and a lot of needs, like needs for religious education, needs for health care, uh, other social services. And because of this need among all the poor these poor people in the Southwest, he founded this religious congregation. Originally, they were called the Missionary Catechists, hmm. Our Lady of Victory Missionary Catechists. And they had a uh, the, the first sisters, the first members of this community. Their names were Sister Julia Doyle and Sister Marie Bennis. And they went to New Mexico. They were sent there in 1922. That was really the beginning of their ministry of the congregation. But one of the reasons that the congregation grew was— this priest in Indiana, at that time he wasn't a bishop yet, Father John Francis Knoll. and of course he is the famous, you know, uh, publisher of our Sunday Visitor. He uh-huh. started our Sunday Visitor, and soon after he he became bishop, and later he received the o- honorary title of Archbishop. But he was very generous with uh, the sisters and having the mother house constructed back in, in the 1920s. Hmm. And you wonder, well, how did it end up in Huntington, Indiana? And it was because um, the founder, Father Sigstein, who was in Chicago, needed a place for the sisters to uh, have a mother house. So somehow I don't remember in the story how he met uh, Father Knoll or Bishop Noel. Uh Archbishop Knoll was a strong supporter from the very beginning because he also saw the need for— um, catechists and uh, sisters in the American Southwest. And he had, Bishop Noel had this land. As a matter of fact, I think he bought the land in Huntington, and this this beautiful property, originally thinking that maybe a seminary, uh, but that didn't come to fruition. And when he saw that Father Sixteen had this, founded this order of sisters for this mission, it seemed like, well, this is perfect. I can, he can use it for that. Hmm. So these sisters, I mean, it's really amazing when you think about they went to these remote poor communities, New Mexico and California, and even into Mexico, I think. And they gave catechesis. They gave Catholic instruction, remote communities. They instructed lay people also, so lay people, adults who could also teach then teach. So they went wherever they were needed. And they were very unique. Because at that time, uh, religious orders, religious congregations founded institutions, you know, schools, hospitals, orphanages, you know. We have this wonderful network of Catholic schools and healthcare facilities, many of them established by religious sisters, Mm -hmm. also religious brothers and priests. But that wasn't the charism of these sisters. They were kind of on the move. They they their ministry was non-institutional. And that's throughout their very history. By the way, I think next mean? year will be their hundredth anniversary. Oh wow. So it's pretty neat. What so, does it mean to be non-institutional? They didn't found institutions. Oh, okay. They didn't start schools. They didn't start hospitals. Sure. So that they would be free to move. Yeah. So they could go where the needs were. Huh. So these sisters, these women were very creative. It took a lot of faith. It took a lot of, of courage, and and now today, you know, the sisters have declined significantly in numbers. They're making plans because you have to make plans when there's a decline. A lot of the sisters are very elderly, but mm-hmm. and they live at at Victory Knoll, you know, Saint Anne's Victory Knoll, and but their prayer is so powerful. Mm-hmm. You know, these are beautiful women. And they still support things that they were, you know, they worked, especially I think about their service with immigrants and Mm -hmm. migrant workers, because, you know, that's very much still one of their very priorities, one of their priorities, uh, you know, human trafficking. So those issues of poverty, et cetera, the Victory Knoll sisters, they would go wherever people were hurting. And even though the congregation has grown smaller, you know, there's still a a prayerful presence here in our diocese and I'm I'm very grateful for them you know their their witness in a, in a non-institutional way their personal witness to Christ and to his love and their uh, imitation really of Mary and her simplicity and her hospitality so I just wanted to mention that cuz I think maybe some people in our diocese don't know yeah. about uh, about these sisters that were you know when you think about it, a mother house right here in our diocese with this strong connection with Archbishop John Knoll.
1: yeah, and I got to wonder if that isn't some of the reason there's such great things going on in this diocese is because of their prayers, you know yeah. and the reason that we've had such great programs and and people coming out of this diocese, yeah that
2: is. These women are just quietly praying for us. Yeah, yeah. And only only God knows the effect and sure. the graces that come from that. Yeah. All right. Well, if you
1: have any questions for Bishop, you can go to RedeemerRadio.com slash askbishop or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And we have a listener submitted question about some of the vandalism happening in Catholic churches throughout the country and The genocide of Christians in Nigeria. We'll talk about that coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.
0: When you're worried about your health, you go see a doctor. Worried about finances? Talk to the helpful folks at Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. You already share our values, why not share in our savings? Notre Dame FCU.
1: Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman, asking the questions that you've submitted for Bishop to answer. And Tom Ryan wrote, I'm hearing rumors of increased incidents of vandalism in Catholic churches throughout the country and the genocide of Christians in Nigeria. Can
2: you please comment? I feel we're blessed to have you as our bishop. God bless. Oh, well, thanks, Tom. You know, two two big issues. I think maybe I'll focus first on the vandalism and, you know, even arson. You know, right. vandalism, arson, you know, and, and really, you know, one of the questions is where's the, the national press coverage of this? You know, there's not a lot. Right. And I mean, I kind of find it upsetting, but anti-Catholicism is one of those acceptable things in our culture. So right. I can't help think if it was a, another group that it would get a lot more publicity. But, but there have been statues um, that have been torn down. Beheaded, vandalism in churches, mm-hmm. fires. I mean, I'll give some examples. Uh, you know, in Boston, St. Peter's Parish Church, there was a statue of Blessed Mary, Virgin Mary. It was scorched. It was lit a flame. Mm-hmm. This is all this summer. You know, in Brooklyn, you know, the Cathedral Prep School, a statue of the Blessed Mother was also attacked, and they smeared it with the word "idol" on it. Uh, this is a hundred-year-old statue. I mean, it's really hate. When you mm-hmm. think about it in Florida, probably one of the worst things was, uh, Ocala, Florida, I think, which is in the diocese of Orlando, a man crashed into a church purposely right. Catholic church with his, queen of peace with his minivan and he poured gasoline in the church's foyer and ignited it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people were there for mass. How much coverage did that have in the news? Right. I mean, that's pretty, that's very bad. Now, we don't know about the St. Gabriel mission in Los Angeles. A fire destroyed it. It may have been arson. I don't think – I haven't seen a result. But most of this historic St. Gabriel mission, a mission founded by St. Junipero Serra, was destroyed by fire. You know, this mission was founded in 1771. So, we'll see. Was Was it arson? I wouldn't be surprised. I know the, they're, they're investigating it. I saw something in the Archdiocese of Miami. They beheaded a statue of Christ at a Catholic church there, good shepherd church. And then the toppling of statues of, of, of St. Junipero Serra. You know, he was a Franciscan from Spain. He was just canonized here in the United States in Washington, D.C. a few years ago mm-hmm. by Pope Francis, if you remember. I was there. He founded several of the missions in California. He was considered the apostle of, of California. And there's just been this movement like to remove his statue from the rotunda of the Capitol. And mm-hmm. I just think this history, I, I, I just want to talk a little bit about it because what's troubling is that how the history is, is is not known or it's distorted. Right. Like why tear down memorials of of this priest? It really saddens me. You know, obviously Archbishop Gomez of Los Angeles, he's spoken about it, but there was this, some decades ago, there was this revising of history to make it look like that, like St. Junipero Serra was somehow responsible for the abuses that were committed against the native people of California. Mm -hmm. He's blamed for, for so much for things that actually happened many years after he died. (laughs) <laughs> you know, you know, it was California's first governor, not until the eighteen hundreds, who called for a war of extermination against the Indians and called on the U.S. Cavalry to help carry out this plan. Hmm. It's really genocidal. That was in 1851. St. Junipero Serra died in 1784. Hmm. You know. And the truth is he fought for the Native Americans. Okay, the colonial system, the Spanish colonists. The system really often considered the Indians to be savages, you know, like barbarians. They saw them as less than human. Well, Saint Junipero Serra opposed that. Mm -hmm. He was their defender. He said this ideology was a blasphemy against Mm. God who created all people, you know, in his image. So here we have someone who who defended the Native peoples and spent his whole life— you know, defending them and protesting any crimes and abuses against them. And now they're tearing down his statue. It's really heartbreaking when you see it. It's just so unfair. He learned the languages of the Native peoples, their customs. He loved the Native Americans. You know, he was 60 years old and he traveled 2,000 miles from Carmel to Mexico City to protest the injustices of the colonial system. Okay, can you imagine at the age of 60 and he had some health issues to demand a bill of rights for the indigenous people. Huh. This was in 1773. This was before the US, before the Declaration of Independence. He was fighting for what he, you know, the inalienable rights mm-hmm. of the native peoples. But, you know, you see in some of these petitions online calling for the removal, not just of his statue, but of his name from schools, etc. Some have compared him to Adolf Hitler. I mean, it's, uh, and the, the, speaking of the missions, like they were concentration camps. But any serious historian knows that's not true. But let me talk about these missions, because that's where a lot of the criticism is. These were communities And they were, you know, Native Americans, Spanish together. Really, there was a mixture. So the natives and Spanish created really a new culture, which we call mestizo, you know, mixed. And you see the art, the architecture. So they had these beautiful mission chapels. There was evangelization going on, you know, Mm -hmm. Father Sarah and the other Franciscans. They never forced Native Americans to become Catholic, but they taught them the faith and they baptized those who wanted to be baptized. And beautiful beautiful communities of worship, and and also agriculture and handicrafts, and they taught the Native Americans certain agricultural practices, et cetera. Now, were, was everything good in the missions? No. Hmm. Because, for example, there was corporal punishment, and that was sometimes used, not by Father Sarah, but that was kind of a common practice in the late 18th century. Sure. Some of the natives died from European diseases, but, you know, Father Sarah, when he was in charge of the mission system, there wasn't physical abuse. There were no forced conversions. He didn't impose Christianity on the natives. If one lived in the missions, it it was voluntary, Mm -hmm. you know? So, that's the truth about Father uh, or Saint Junipero Serra. So, um, I just wanted to talk about that because I think our Catholic people or the general public should know the truth. Is it just because he was a white missionary that he's just condemned, you know, when you think about his holiness and all the good he did.
1: Do you think the attacks on the church, uh, whether it be statues or actual buildings or individual people, uh, the church, do you think part of that is just a persecution that comes with the the package? If you're a Christian, you're going to be persecuted. And it almost, it's a in some ways, it's a validation of, of our faith and, and that – If we aren't being persecuted, then maybe we're being a little too wishy-washy about the faith, and that kind of saying enough for being what's right is going to come with its attacks.
2: Right. Well, yeah, I think we have to expect persecution. Jesus said that. You know, I just think, though, that historical truth needs to be taught. Oh, of course, yeah. I do think that where the church or Catholics or Christians were problematic in the way they acted, we need to be honest about it, Yeah, you know? We have to fight racism. We have to fight, you know, against these violations of human dignity. We have to work for racial justice. So all that is is very important. But the truth has to be there. It can't be lies or misconceptions being spread, Mm -hmm. you know. Mentioned also in the question about
1: the genocide of Christians in Nigeria— there's also been a firebomb in the cathedral in Managua, Nicaragua. This isn't just a U.S. thing. This is a, a world issue. There's persecution. There's vandalism all over the place. Any thoughts on,
2: on maybe Nicaragua or Yeah, or, um, I mean, that's Nigeria? terrible. You know, the cathedral in Managua. And again, I don't think that got a lot of press either. It got some. But France... There have been a lot of vandalism right. of Catholic churches in France. Did you see the cathedral? I don't know how you pronounce it because I don't know French. N-A-N-T-E-S. Nantes? I, I don't know. I don't know either. But, you know, they had a fire there, arson. Yeah. Beautiful Gothic cathedral. I mean, it didn't destroy the whole cathedral, but it did significant damage. Uh, so you see a lot of this in uh, in Europe, too. What I've seen mostly is in France. So maybe we can talk about...
1: Nigeria in next week's episode because there was a recent article on Today's Catholic about the Nigerian priests in our diocese and so there's, there's a lot to go into there but there really hasn't been as far as I know a lot of persecution a lot of vandalism
2: happening in our diocese has there no there hasn't you, you know um, I've seen some I mean there was some uh, obscene graffiti on the Archbishop Knowles Center when the protests were going on a month ago okay that we had to paint over, but that was happening all over the place. That was happening all over the yeah. place. I don't know that it was directly against yeah. you know us because we're Catholic. You know, I did face more anti-Catholic uh, stuff when I was a priest because there were some in Harrisburg. There were some very anti-Catholic groups. They didn't vandalize, but they did like preach regularly against us. So there were those kind of verbal attacks. So I've experienced that sometimes, but now when it's getting into kind of physical attacks or, you know, vandalism and fires, arson, stuff like that, thank God we haven't had that. Mm -hmm. And I don't know of any any other diocese in Indiana. Do you? Have you heard anything? I haven't heard much. No. But these other states, you know, quite a bit. So I think we just persevere. You know, persecution is... I, I probably wouldn't use that word, although maybe in the future there'll be more persecution. Mm-hmm. Maybe call it like a soft persecution because I don't like referring it because I think of people who are really suffering for right. the faith. Yeah, You know, in certain countries where they may be imprisoned or even killed for the faith. I would use the word persecution more in reference to those who are undergoing that kind of suffering. Mm-hmm. I would call it here, you know, kind of, more uh, a, a soft kind of persecution, I'd probably just say prejudice. Mm-hmm. But when you look at what's happening in some other countries, it's pr- it's very bad. Here, we see some erosion of religious freedom. That is a grave concern. Now, some of the recent Supreme Court decisions that we've talked about on this program before have given us some hope, mm-hmm. but that's an ongoing battle. You know, I still worry about um, you know, our religious freedom in right. certain areas, especially when it comes to hiring employees, especially teachers in our schools, mm-hmm. that we have the freedom to to follow the tenets of our faith or even in our health insurance programs mm-hmm. and not being forced by the government to pay for things that we believe to be immoral. So, so I still think we have to be vigilant for religious liberty, and, and sometimes it depends on, you know, who's in power. In government, etc., mm-hmm. on whatever level—the national or the f- state level—but there are some opponents of the church that really, you know, would like us to close. They don't want us. they, they want our hospitals, for example, our Catholic hospitals, to do abortions or euthanasia right. or sex reassignment surgery, and want to force us to do it. Mm-hmm. Well, we would close before we would do those right. things that are diametrically opposed to the service of life. So, yeah, we have to be vigilant. I don't know what the future holds. Yeah.
1: In all of the pandemic and the kind of craziness that's going on, what has been the most difficult for you? I don't know if it's been dealing with the rescheduling of confirmations, if it's the reopening of the Catholic schools and and dealing with what's the best way to do that, uh, our parishes and finances, employees. You, You
2: know what? I think the, the saddest thing for me is the polarization, that mm-hmm. all this has become so political. I mean, the great majority of our Catholic people are very supportive, but I'll get letters where people might say, well, if you require this or you do this, we're not going to extend our kids to Catholic school, or mm-hmm. we're not going to give to the bishop's appeal. Right. And then there'll be the actual opposite opinion. And I'll get a letter <laughs> and say, if you do this or don't do this, we're going to take our kids out of Catholic school, or we're going to stop giving to the bishop's appeal. Yeah. I'm like, come on, give us a break, you know? Like everybody's trying to do their best right. during this pandemic, so that kind of that anger that's out there among some is 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 not good, and I don't think it's and I, it's definitely not good spiritually, right? You know, I think at this time we need to support one another and support the church. And yeah, is everyone going to agree on everything? No. But everyone's trying to do their best. I think of the hard work of our principals, for example, or our Catholic schools office. I mean, this has been tough for them. I mean, they're working so hard trying to do – I mean, we want our schools open. You know, we want to do in-person instruction. At the same time, want to have all the precautions there so that we don't have an outbreak in one of our schools. And, you know, so trying to, to, to manage all of this is really challenging.
1: Right. And I think to assume that you and our principals and our priests are concerned about not only our spiritual health, but also our physical health, and that I assume that you want what's best for us and, and are trying to do the best that you can. And some people, it seems like they just assume that there's some kind of a conspiracy going on and that they're, they're trying to give in to what the government is saying to do and instead of just saying – well, there's, there's some science here, and we're trying to do our yeah. best, and we're trying to make sure everybody's safe. Yeah. yeah just to it's tough. give yeah. people the it's benefit really of the hard. doubt instead of assuming the worst in people. Right,
2: right. But I think there's a kind of an anger out there in society uh, in general and a political polarization already, especially right. with the presidential elections approaching sure. in a few months. So, And then with the pandemic on top of everything, okay. and then the racial tensions – all this, you know, and but this is the time where we have to live the gospel. That's why I did that prayer at the beginning of this program. You know, we're called to live the gospel of peace and love and avoid the harshness and the bitterness that is present in society. Exactly. Well, thank you so much, Bishop. We'll talk about
1: Nigeria next week. And if people have questions, you can shoot us a text at the Holy Cross College text line 260 436. 9598. And before we go, could we get your Episcopal blessing? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit.
2: Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle.
0: Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. What's the difference between Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and a bank? Well, banks are owned by investors looking to make a profit. Notre Dame FCU is different. We are a not-for-profit, member-owned cooperative. Our mission is to help our members improve their lives by providing products and services to save them money. If we end up with too much money ourselves, we simply give it away to our members' favorite charities. Last year, over a million dollars. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.